Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 34 and the SADF are inside Angola. It's the 4th of May 1978 and Operation Reindeer is underway. It's the joint attacks on Kasinga and Chetakwera. As we heard last episode, both assaults are not going according to plan. We ended up in episode 33 alongside Battle Group Juliet as it began to move into Chetakwera, one of Swapo's main base networks just over the cutline or border. Juliet had arrived at its attack position north of the base and first managed to bypass a thick field of mahangu, a type of corn. Then we were faced with bush and trees as they moved southwards towards the settlement. They had taken heavy fire so far and things were not going to improve. According to the initial plan, Major Fancel and his mechanized company would burst past the kraal lying northeast of Chetiqueta and then head straight for the base. Remember, Fancel could only see four of his 14 rattles. The bush and the grass and the trees were so thick. For a moment he wondered if he should dismount his infantry, who on board the Buffel troop carriers then thought better of it. Speed was of the utmost importance now, and that would mean slowing down. As his mechanized units moved into the ramparts of the settlement, individual vehicles fell foul of the trenches and bunkers, mainly because many were almost invisible, they'd been camouflaged so well. Some of these vehicles were towed out under fire, but one rattle in particular had a harrowing few minutes after it fell through the roof of a bomb shelter, 150 meters from the base. The riflemen supporting the unit managed to fight off Swapo's soldiers, but all attempts at extricating the rifle failed at least initially. While they were trying to attach tow bars, machine gun and AK fire was directed at the strandled rifle and the infantry nearby. Another rifle number R27027 blasted the first line of trenches and huts with its 20mm cannon and browning machine gun, only to have a tree fall on the barrel of the cannon. That put its elevation mechanism out of action. As they advanced further, firing the cannon, despite its inability to elevate, they drove into an ant heap where it stuck fast. It took 45 minutes to get the vehicle to move, while the fight continued past them. By now, the rattles were split up, smoke, bush and grass, along with the booby traps and hidden trenches, causing some chaos. Each rattle was fighting its own localized battle. There was no one in command, each vehicle was pretty much on its own. Second Lieutenant J. Orwachen managed to pull them together, and despite losing contact with Major von Sale, they continued fighting through the village, which took just over 10 minutes. The thick African bush was causing damage along with Swapo's heavy fire. Troops' rifles were damaged as they aimed out of the loopholes when the vehicles scraped against the thorn trees. In one case, Swapo shot off the sights of a 20mm gun. The bulletproof vision blocks were also beginning to star, while the AK and machine gun rounds did not penetrate the thick reinforced glass they became almost useless, making driving and firing more difficult. Trees were falling all over the place as the 90mm and 20mm guns ripped up the foliage. Then Rattle 1 of Bravo Company was hit by a falling branch which damaged its machine gun support. Shortly afterwards, it got stuck in thick sand. AK fire was raking the vehicles and one by one the South Africans dealt with each trench and defensive position. But the defenders continued fighting. Once again, Swapo did not turn and run, but fought on, which surprised the South Africans. The air attack had softened Swapo up, but they were not willing to go without a fight. Rifleman P.J. Fushier told author Willem Steenkamp later that, The fighting was fierce, not as we expected. I think that everyone thought that the base would be deserted like the last one. The South Africans were starting to take prisoners, including a youngster who walked out to Rifle 13 Charlie. He spent the rest of the battle riding inside the armoured vehicle, some of the defenders were being run over by these heavy rattles. Others tried fighting back from trenches, their bunkers and behind trees, but most suffered the same fate. This was before the rattles were equipped with run-flat systems and it was really a miracle that more had not been punctured up to now. 
A 75mm recoilless gun then took out one of the South African Eland armoured cars, but the rattles opened fire on the crew of the Browning machine guns. For a few minutes, Swapo fighters tried to run to the 75mm and were cut down. By now, the firefight had been going on for 10 minutes and a few South Africans had been slightly wounded by bullets which entered via the rifle ports. The SADF vehicles and men began emerging at the southern end of Chitiquera into open ground. Of the 14 rattles that started, only six could be seen. Worse, Lieutenant Fleischer radioed to say that two of his earlunts had been hit and damaged by Swapo fire and his crew had suffered serious casualties. However, there was also a kind of minor miracle. None of the mechanized infantry on the buffles had been killed, nor had any rattle been knocked out in spite of the mortars shot and shell flung at them. There was no doubt that the rattles, though, had taken a battering. All had some kind of damage, and only five of the fourteen were now still fully serviceable. When Fleischer's airlines arrived, it was clear that his men were in far more trouble. Two commanders had been killed and one seriously wounded, while one of his armoured cars was knocked out and a second was out of action because of the dead commander. Fleischer's airlines had been focused at a point south of Chetekura in dense bush which had hampered their visibility, although they managed to fire off dozens of 90mm high-explosive shells and hundreds of 7.62mm machine gun rounds at Swapo. Eland 1-4 Bravo took the brunt of Swapo's return fire. It was squarely in the field of fire of the dreaded 75mm recoilless gun. Trooper B. Gomeshuis, who survived, explained that We began firing our machine gun, but we had problems with stoppages. We were under fire all the time. We fired two 90mm shells at where we'd seen the enemy move just as the commander was about to load the third shell. There was a tremendous explosion and the car began to burn. The commander was killed instantly, while the driver, Trooper A. F. Jones, was wounded by shrapnel in the shoulder. Gomeshuis and Jones realized their commander was dead and jumped out of the armored car, which was now burning fiercely. Combat Team 2's Corporal R.G. Keynes ran through heavy close-range fire to lead these two to his island, but things weren't over for the Noddy cars. The second fatality was caused by an 82mm mortar bomb. Eland 1-4 Charlie's team leader was also killed when he opened his hatch to get a better view of an enemy position and the mortar exploded a few feet away from the island. He survived initially, but died on the way to the medics. Meanwhile, the Elands were peppering the huts and trenches with 90mm shells. In the heat of combat, an Irland crew loaded a wounded Swapo fighter on the armoured car to take as a prisoner. Moments later, though, he stopped moving. He had succumbed to his wounds. As word seeped through the South African forces that two commanders were dead, their mood changed. For some reason, they thought they were immune, that the attack would be all on Swapo, and that they were in some sort of safe bubble, which sounds crazy, but such was the level of confidence, which was now severely shaken. Only two nights earlier, the dead men had been talking about what they were going to do when their national service was over. Now their lives were over, leaving only loved ones and friends to try and come to terms with this personal disaster. And on the other side, the villagers in Swapo were going through similar thoughts. Lieutenant Breda of Combat Team 1 led a mechanized platoon, 38 men and 4 rattles, and as they approached the base from the north, he spotted the first trenches and ordered the troops out. He quickly realized that they had arrived on the eastern edge of Chetequera and not the top, and swung his platoon to the right, to the west, directly into the middle of the bombed-out base. They started coming across mangled bodies, and the trail of devastation through Chetequera was huge. It was definitely not a pretty sight, one rifleman told William Stinkamp. The platoon now was coming under fire as they swept the base, and they emerged on the south side. Like other South African units, they had failed to check the western edges of the base, which was going to cause the SADF a bit of a problem in a short while. 
possibly one of the strangest events of Chetiquetta was what happened to E.S. Jameson of Rathal 3-1 Alpha, who was wounded in the hand by shrapnel from his own grenade. He'd thrown the M26 into a trench, and someone inside threw the grenade out again. The fragmentation grenade exploded on the lip of the trench, wounding Jameson. Then the 12 Swapu fighters inside climbed out and surrendered. The medics, meanwhile, had treated a wounded woman soldier and other Swapu fighters who had a range of injuries, including bullet wounds on the arms and legs and shrapnel wounds to the head. It was a bloody encounter, but slowly the South Africans fought their way south, clearing the trenches as five Alouette gunships circled overhead. Two of these, though, were hit by ground fire and withdrew, but the rest continued supporting the men on the ground. The platoons then began to regroup on the south side of Chetiquetta, and Major von Sale began Phase 2, mopping up operations. Riflemen were sent to inspect the southern trenches, and he followed in his rattle as backup. But the mopping up turned into a full-scale gun battle, as most of the Swapo fighters in these trenches seemed to be unscathed. The South Africans were forced to sweep these clear, and then joined up with Van Breda's platoon. It was then... They heard about what was going on with Combat Team 3, which was pinned down, and they rushed to reinforce their fellow South Africans. Buffel 47 Foxtrot had taken some Swapo prisoners and delivered them into custody at the base's parade ground, after which they moved back into the settlement to pick up loose equipment. Unfortunately for this section, Swapo fighters on the western edge had been untouched so far, and these men and women began advancing towards the SATF units, running from trench to trench and firing as they went. After an intense firefight with a number of Swapo in one of these defensive positions, the South Africans managed to lob hand grenades into the trench and the shooting stopped. The men and women in there who survived surrendered, and Buffel 47 Foxtrot's platoon collected the AK's ammunition and other equipment and loaded it on the rattles. Swapo wounded were then carried by their comrades to the medics, waiting near the parade ground. Mopping up began in earnest, with dozens of Swapo being taken prisoner. One of the medics was busy bandaging wounded men from both sides when he suddenly realized that a bunker on the corner of the parade ground had not been cleared. There were 12 Swapo fighters inside, but four were trapped under the beams which had collapsed under the weight of the rattles. They all surrendered. There were moments of personal reflection. In a hut, the South Africans found four women reading a Bible aloud and left them alone. In other huts, there were more women in combat fatigues lying dead. They were fighters. Then they came across the children, who had survived and were crying. As you're going to hear when we return to the Battle of Kasinga, the misery of the children was heart-wrenching for these national servicemen. The real victims of wars, always the kids. At 3.30 in the afternoon, Chetequera was taken. All firing stopped. The attack had lasted hours longer than anticipated, as with Kasinga, and now the South Africans were facing a night inside Angola instead of heading back to Southwest Africa immediately. The sappers were hard at work trying to salvage and repair the damaged Yelens and Rattles along with the buffles that had taken a battering. The doctors were working non-stop along with the medics trying to treat what looked like an endless stream of wounded. Then the counting started. 248 Swapo soldiers killed, 200 captured, and a large amount of war material was seized. On the South African side, two had died, ten were wounded. Sixty Swapo men and women were now being treated by the medics with shrapnel and bullet wounds. Some had fractures. Swapo soldiers who were taken prisoner asked for medicine for a variety of basic illnesses, including colds. It was a strange moment as medics handed out cough drops to men and women they'd been trying to kill only moments before. Some of the Swapo wounded began to treat their own, working alongside the SADF medics. Their stoicism impressed all who watched as the wounded refused to complain nor show pain. Finally, treatment complete, Battle Group Juliet's commanders began to consider their next move. 
It was 5.45 in the late afternoon and they were supposed to attack a smaller base nearby called Mahama before lagering for the night. This was clearly out of the question and Tactical HQ back in Ondangwa ordered Commander Bespier to skip the Mahama attack and lager the vehicles immediately. Then, early in the morning, he was to head straight south to meet up with combat team Jabeir. The battle-weary troops of Battle Group Juliet prepared for the unplanned overnight inside Angola next to Chetaqueda. They were staggering with exhaustion, but still had to rotate guard duty around the lagered vehicles. The sappers laid mines to slow a possible attack by Swapo or Fapla overnight. Combat Team 1 and 3 covered the western, southwestern and northwestern approaches, while Combat Team 2 covered the eastern side. Rat packs were devoured, weapons cleaned, then most troops fell asleep. Some could not sleep. Riflemen, for sheer of Platoon 3, listened to the Swapo prisoners of war cursing the South Africans and saying Swapo will still win. Sentries could hear some of the infantrymen muttering in their sleep, racked by nightmares. One medic said later he began to hear an even more horrifying sound. A night in Angola is something else. You hear the jackals and hyenas which had come to chew at the bodies. They scream and yelp and howl. Meanwhile, further south, Commandant Joubert and his combat team had also decided to lie up after working over the bases which were below Chetiquera. The initial plan was for combat team Serpentine to cross the cutline east of Beacon 8 and advance north for around 4 kilometers, then attack a base called Domondola 2 in support of Joubert. If that went well, Serpentine was to head off to Domondola 1 and Haimona, two other smaller bases southeast of Domondola 2. Another base further northeast called Chatua was also in for special attention. The artillery shelled this base along with the two Dobondolas while mirages strafed and bombed Mahama. The problem with this plan was when the South Africans approached Dobondola 2, their first target, it was deserted. But there was a great deal of material lying around, weapons, ammunition, equipment. It was clear that Swapo had evacuated the base recently and hurriedly. Civilians living nearby told the SADF that the Swapo soldiers had disappeared in a northwesterly direction the previous day. In other words, away from the coming attacks on Mahama and Chetaquera, they'd lived to fight another day. Serpentine set the empty base alight and handed out some of the food to the villagers. And that was the end of the action that Battlegroup Serpentine saw during Operation Reindeer, because HQ told him to pass up his scheduled attacks on both Dombondola 1 and Haimona. He never found out why, and to this day we're not entirely sure Perhaps the top brass suspected that both of these would be empty as well, given what the civilians had said about Swapo's departure. But something else had gone wrong. Combat Team Yobeh had got lost and bogged down, only managing to cross the cutline at 2.15 in the afternoon of May 4th. That was more than two hours behind the original schedule. Their misfortune was compounded by the fact that they then got lost again. This part of Angola is flat and featureless, and it's hard to discern from maps where you are unless you hit a clear feature such as a large salt pan or specific tree. So when Yobe eventually arrived at his target, Chatua, he was approaching from the wrong direction. He decided to swing his combat team south of the target and proceed up its eastern flank to the right. That was a calculated risk, and he radioed for artillery support to keep Swapo's head down in the small base, just in case. Unfortunately, the shelling did not materialize because radio communication had broken down. Still, Swapo failed to open fire on the South Africans passing within AK range, let alone mortar range. Yobe ordered his men into the base, leading to a fight that lasted only half an hour, 
and cost eight Swapo lives. A large haul of rifles and ammunition were found and loaded onto the rattles, but now the combat team was way too late to hit their next target, codenamed Vuntuk, which lay 10 kilometers north and therefore just south of Chetequeta. So combat team Yobeh also lagered like Juliet. Overnight word came from HQ in Ndangwa for Yobeh to abandon his attack on any more bases and the next day to head back to Southwest Africa at first light. He duly set off at 0600 hours 30 with an SA Air Force light plane, a Cessna, acting as a radio relay, and eventually he met up with Battle Group Juliet, which had also set off that morning heading south from Chetequeta. One of the troops moving with Joubert was listening to an international news bulletin and heard the reporter say that the SADF was in Angola but was now moving out. That shocked the soldier. The information about the invasion into Angola was already making world headlines and they seemed to know more than the troops on the ground. Battle Group Juliet and Combat Team Joubert made it across the cut line back into southwest Africa at 1000 hours in the morning of the 5th and midway between beacons 8 and 9. The third phase of the operation involving 3-2 Battalion around 20 kilometers east of Chetequera was going to get underway. A string of small Swapo bases in the vicinity of Omapepa, Namudi and Hombi needed to be taken out and the task was tailor-made for 3-2 Battalion. Remember this was a unit of Angolans, mainly former FNLA troops, some Namibians and South African officers and NCOs. The Buffalo Battalion, as it was known, was going to sow havoc at the string of small bases given the code objective Charlie. They'd fight through this area between May the 8th and May the 10th, aiming at nearly a dozen different objectives in total. First, however, we need to return to Kasinga to find out how things developed by the end of the battle, and as you're going to hear in next episode, the planners' worst-case scenario had developed. Cuban and Papla troops were going to try and stop the paratroopers getting away, and they were bolstered by a number of T-34 tanks and other heavy weapons. If you want to follow the roots of these attacks, by the way, head off to warinangola.com where Johan, the webmaster, has loaded dozens of maps and other details about Operation Reindeer. But right now, it's time to halt and secure the perimeter. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps grow our audience. If you'd like to contact me, you can send an email via my website, desmondlatham.com, or you can also direct message me on Twitter. My handle is at Des Latham. Until next, tootsies. Thank you.